0: So I think that to this day, Malcolm X has the best dentist analogy in a speech. So he's so he's so he's so he's referring to how to how, to how some civil rights leaders, specifically Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and Albert Clegg, uh, refer to nonviolent nonviolent resistance, and he and he likens their tactics to that of a dentist. He says this: It's like when you go to the dentist, and, and the man's going to, going to take your tooth. You're going to fight him when he starts pulling. So he squirts some stuff in your jaw called, no, called Novocaine to make you think they're not doing anything to you. So you sit there, and because you got all that Novocaine in your jaw, you suffer peacefully. Blood running all down your jaw, and you don't know what's happening, because someone has taught you to suffer peacefully. Now to Malcolm, that's, that, was, that was fundamentally an act of deception. Anybody who tells you not to fight back is lying to you and is actually an arm of the oppressor. He's especially got it out for pastors. He said, anytime a shepherd, a pastor teaches you and me not to run from the white man and at the same time teaches us not to fight the white man, he's a traitor to you and me. Now for black people this is particularly poignant because of the profound history of violence that we've suffered at the hands of white supremacy. Even the founding and creation of Black History Month at, at the time, Negro History Week, by Carter G. Woodson was an attempt to beat back violence, especially educational violence, that is the violence of, being to- of having your history stolen. The violence of being told that you're useless. The violence of of being told that you've contributed nothing to human society. The violence of being told that you're a people meant purely to be beasts of burden. But while that's educational violence, there's also plenty of physical violence to go around. There's the physical violence of being actively torn from your homeland in racialized chattel slavery. There's the violence of the Middle Passage, a journey where millions of African lives were lost to starvation, disease, and suicide. There's the violence of slavery itself, the whip, the sexual exploitation, the family separation. There's the violence of reconstruction with the founding of the KKK and other white paramilitary groups like the White League, the the Knights of White Camellia, the Red Shirts. There's the violence of lynching, burning black people alive, hanging them, shooting them to pieces, there's the violence of Jim Crow and the very legal structure of this country meant to maintain a second-class citizenry, there's the violence of convict leasing, of debt peonage, otherwise known as neo-slavery, where the buying and selling of prison labor soon after emancipation led to even more brutal treatment of black people. There's the violence of the carceral state, the police violence, the specter of our common enemy death. Never leaves. Brother Malcolm would say, in light of that, your life is worth defending, so defend it to the death, even if it means the destruction of your enemy. Now, this is profoundly tempting especially for those of us who have been and continue to be victims of unjust violence and oppression. And I'm not just talking about black people. White, white supremacy hurts us all, including those for whom the system was created. But I also think about our economic and political systems that, that oppress and victimize the poor. I think about the anti-Asian violence that's persisted in this country for over a century and the resentment that it can build. There's a lot of violence and a lot of hate. I'm supposed to go through uh, Isaiah 17 to 20 today. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I want to focus on Isaiah 19. Because when I read Isaiah 19, I was like, this is a very, very difficult chapter. But Isaiah 19 is for all of us. It's for, it's for anyone who has suffered. It's for anyone who has enemies. Or anybody, anybody who knows somebody who's hard to love. Because Isaiah 19 gives us a framework for how the Lord treats his enemies and how we ought to treat ours. In this beautiful but extremely difficult chapter, we're told two things. God hates oppression and God loves the oppressor. And I'm going to be honest, that 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 first one, love it. Hate oppression. Oppression's bad, resist it at every point. But that second one, da. Ah, ha. Ah. And yet, it lies at the very heart of the gospel. If you've been with us for the last few months, we're preaching through the book of Isaiah. Chapters 13 to 20 are various woes against the nations that surround Israel and Judah, nations that the people of God are tempted to ally with to protect them from the current big bad empire, Assyria. Those nations include Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Cush, and Egypt. Everybody gets a little judgment. It's like an Oprah, it's like an Oprah episode. You get some judgment, you get some judgment, you get some judgment. And a few weeks ago, I talked, about, I talked about Babylon and God's judgment on both a nation and a logic. But this week, we get to consider the other great enemy of Israel, the, the oppressor par excellence, the slave-holding Egypt. And so for context, when, when we hear Egypt, I want us to hear Egypt the way that Israel heard Egypt. That is, every time you think of Egypt, you think about Exodus 2. We're told in Exodus 2 that a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly, unquote. Ruthless, harsh labor, oppression. These are the traumas that pervaded the Israelite mind upon the mention of Egypt for hundreds of years. Before the Lord heard their cries and saved them. In fact, this was the act by which God created his people. I'm going to keep driving this home. God, God introduces himself to his people by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Babylon is like the cosmic enemy in scripture. Egypt is the material one. The oppressor. The sound of Egypt is the crack of the whip. The feeling of Egypt is the searing pain of the lash, the precarity of being economically exploited, the, the uncertainty of even having children because you don't know if the oppressor is going to kill them or take them away from you. That's what Israel heard when they heard Egypt. Which makes it all the more ridiculous that in the face of Assyria, that they would be tempted to go to Egypt for help. Well, it, it describes their desperation. Because it takes a massive level of desperation for you to go to the one who oppressed you for help. And that, even in its own way, is another offense to God. God's the one who saved them. Wouldn't they go back to the Lord? But this prophecy isn't against Israel and Judah. It's against Egypt. And the Lord seems to take a scorched earth policy... Adonai, the cloud rider, shows up for the utter decimation of Egypt, the total systemic dismantling of the nation. Verses 2 to 17 outline a threefold destruction, the social and religious dismantling of Egypt, the economic dismantling of Egypt, and the political dismantling of Egypt. Verses two to four read, I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother. Neighbor against neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord is saying that there's going to be chaos. People are going to run to their idols. They'll run to their usual religious practices, not knowing that what they're experiencing is the judgment of the true God. But not only are they going to suffer social collapse, they will also suffer economic collapse. Verses 5 to 10 are all about money because they're all about the Nile River. Now, this is one of these points of, of cultural disconnect for many of us, mostly because we've been intentionally divorced from the land. Land for us is a commodity to be bought and sold. Rather than a material source of life. So this past week, when we had uh, when we had small group, I asked the I asked the small group uh, if you were a billionaire, you had as much money and much money in the world. How would that change your life? What's the first thing that you would do? Now, when I asked that question to myself, I thought selfishly, and I was like, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make a, uh, a se- there's going to be a secret room in the house that will open up behind a bookcase, and it will open up into, into, a, into a massive library. It's like Rick Warren. There's a video of Rick Warren, of like him actually doing this, because he actually has this in his house. But there were two members of the small group who decided to love with their money, um, and, 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 and and, they, and they, said that they they said that they would purchase land to house people, to care for their family, to care for communities. They understand that land is life. Now, our country's history is one of consistently stripping land from people. One example, the dispossession and expropriation of land from our Native American neighbors. But here's another example. At the end of the Civil War, General William T. Sherman met with a number of black leaders in Savannah, Georgia, and he asked them what newly freed people needed. And the answer came from a minister named Garrison Frazier. He said, the way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor. And so what Sherman did, he set aside 400,000 acres of confiscated land for freed slaves. It's called Field Order 15. It's where the idea of 40 acres and a mule came from. Like, this is actual land that, after the Civil War, was confiscated from plantation owners and given to freed slaves. The bad news? Within a year, Lincoln had been assassinated, Johnson became president, and in order to maintain, quote, a white man's government, his words, not mine, he took that land out from under them and gave it back to to plantation owners land is life we often forget that but egypt could not the nile is the longest river in the world and life followed the nile because outside of that area was lifeless desert the nile provided resources and food fertile land for growing crops ways to travel not only for people but also for materials but in isaiah 19:5 to 10 the Nile dries up, the canals stink, the, dream, the streams dry up, the fields die, and everyone who depended on them wails. Complete economic destruction. And we ain't done. Verses 11 to 15, the officials of Zoan are, are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. The imagery is stark. The Lord has basically drugged Egypt's leaders. Their political leaders can't can't help them in their time of need. They're too busy being confused. They are without recourse. Total social, economic, and political collapse. Now, I want you to imagine your enemy. Someone who wants you dead. Now, I know that, that also could be hard. So, so, so what, about, what about someone who has harmed you in the past? Someone who you don't even want to think about because it makes you angry. Someone you can't forgive. Or maybe it's someone you don't want to forgive. Maybe even that's too much. What about somebody who you think is difficult to love? Someone who constantly gets on your last nerve. Have you ever, maybe, perhaps in your darkest moments, wished ill upon this person? Maybe maybe they'll get into a car accident. Maybe they won't get that job. I won't entertain all of those thoughts. What I want us to see is that we have all, at some point in our lives, wished for someone else's destruction, or at least their radical humbling. And if you're Israel, it makes complete sense for you to think that about Egypt, if you're Malcolm X and you continue to witness anti-black violence and exploitation, if you're the descendant of a lynching victim, if your child was killed by a mass shooter, if you're a victim of abuse, we want revenge. We want the oppressor destroyed. When, 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 when I see innocent black men, women, and children killed by police or anyone, I don't just want the offenders in jail, I want them under the jail. Those of us who, deal, who are deeply justice minded have this temptation. We don't just want the oppressor, we, we, we don't just want the oppression to stop. We want the offender to burn. But then verses 18 to 25 come in. And this is the payoff, because this is the application. This is the main thrust of this passage that God ordains the social, religious, economic, and political collapse of Egypt, but He does not ordain its destruction. God rips the rug entirely out from under Egypt. And then he redeems them. We're told in verse 18 that Egyptian cities will swear allegiance to the Lord. We're told in verse 19 that physical monuments of of Adonai worship will be both in the middle and on the borders of Egypt. We're told in verse 20 that Egypt is going to cry out. And God's going to send a redeemer to Egypt. In verse 21, we're told that the Lord reveals himself to the Egyptians. They acknowledge him and sacrifice and vow to him. We're told in verse 22 that the Lord sends a plague, but then he heals Egypt. Verses 23 to 25 are where it gets absolutely ridiculous. Because we're told that there's going to be a highway connecting Israel with its two great enemies the slaveholder, Egypt, and the imperial invader, Assyria. And then verse 25. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. What? The only people who are consistently called the people, handiwork, and inheritance of the Lord is Israel. Israel, not these oppressing nations. But the scripture says that Egypt and Assyria would be redeemed because God loves even his enemies. In fact, that's what the good news of the gospel is. You see, when the, when the Son of God took on flesh to gather and save his people, he wasn't just coming to a people who loved him, knew he was coming, and were really hyped about him, about him upending their lives. He was coming to claim and oppressed people who didn't know what they needed. Some of you have this story personally, that you were running your hellbound race indifferent to the cost, but Christ looked upon your helpless state and led you to the cross. But he led you to the cross because he went there first. Not for a people who loved him, but for a people whom he loved. He loves you so that you can love. He died so that you would become his people. He was raised so that you might live. The son of God endured the brutality and humiliation of crucifixion at the hands of the powers and principalities whom he hated for the sake of humanity whom he loved. He made a public example of his enemies, but not so much the human ones as the cosmic ones. Sin, death, and the devil, all soundly defeated by the death of Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, Isaiah 19 shows us that God is willing to move heaven and earth to save Egypt, the enemies of his people. The good news of the gospel is that God is willing to move heaven and earth to save those who consider themselves to be his enemies. That is, us. See, that's the good news, that that God loves Egypt, Egypt, enough to end their oppressive practices and bring them to himself. He loves you and me enough to redeem us from our sin by the death and resurrection of Christ. Sin is this great leveler. It makes us all enemies of God apart from God's grace. So what does that practically look like? What does it practically look like for you to embrace that truth? It's very simple. Love your enemies. Love the people who abuse you. Love the people who annoy you. Love the people who devote resources to your destruction. Now, a lot of us are going to bristle when we hear that. Am I saying be a doormat? Am I saying remain in relationships that lead to our harm? No. If you're in a situation in which you're being harmed, we as your community, I as one of your pastors, are am going to do whatever I can to get you out of it. But I want us first to sit with the words of Jesus and sit with the words of the apostle. I could paraphrase them, but I don't want us to have any excuses. So let's just hear just straight Jesus. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. is perfect. A few things there. Um, first of all, there's a, there seems to be a condition in there. That is, if you want to look like children of the Father, this is what that ethically looks like. It looks like you loving your enemies and those who persecute you. In fact, it's integral to what Jesus calls perfection. That is, this is something that Christians are called to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. My theological best friend uh, Antonio Gonzalez frames it this way. The Sermon on the Mount is not for Herod and it's not for Caesar. It's not for the implementation of the state. But it's also not just kind of spoken out into the air or just, just a mirror for us to see it and be like, oh, I could never do that and then we just rest in our own inadequacy. And it's also not... Just a guide for our private lives. No, 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 no. When Jesus preaches, he is preaching to a new community that he has gathered and that he has empowered by his spirit. That is, these are normal Christian community things that he describes. And if these commands sound ridiculous to us, it's because we haven't allowed the word and the spirit to penetrate as deeply into our souls as they ought. Loving our enemies isn't just like a nice thing to do. First of all, it's ridiculous, but it's it's not just a nice thing to do. This is what the Lord empowers us to do. And Paul says the same thing pretty clearly in Romans 12. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. He repeats himself in case he didn't get it the first time. Romans, Romans 12, 17 to 21, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, and this is a, this is a difficult proverb, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, I, I think that one of the reasons why we seek revenge or retributive justice is because I think we think that people are going to get away with stuff if we don't do anything about it. And it's a good impulse. We don't like injustice, especially when it happens to us and those whom we love. We're, we're, we're in systems that, 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 that don't mete out justice justly. Some people get it. Other people don't. But, 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 but there's something that we all need to know and that we all need to deeply, deeply believe. And it's that nobody gets away with anything. Somebody has wronged you. And it still bothers you because they're getting away with it. They are not getting away with it. If we believe that our God is a God of justice, then we have to believe that he will work it in a better way than we could ever imagine. And the way that he works it may be the redemption of your enemy. And that's good news. Because it's only if we recognize that, the, that, that, that when we are sinned against, that that makes the Lord more upset than it makes us. Only then will we be able to hand, hand justice over to the Lord. And only when we recognize that apart from God's grace, we are enemies of God. Only then can we extend grace to our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, and our enemies. And here's the thing, like love is not a fuzzy feeling. Love is a series of material actions. That's what Paul says. Paul says it's feeding people. It's giving them something to drink. It's clothing them. Maybe it's paying your enemy's rent. It's refusing to allow bitterness to consume you. And you don't just do that by not being bitter. You fight it with actual acts of love. So consider your enemy. Consider somebody who is out to get you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's your mother or your father. Your sister, your brother, your spouse. Maybe it's your child. Someone that you are tempted. That you are just tempted. You're just like, dude, get away from me. When that happens, this is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is my challenge. This is my challenge to us. When that happens, consider a material way to love that person. You see, if you... If you look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s principles of nonviolence, they are utter nonsense if you're not a Christian. Principle three is that nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice and evil, not people, affirming that evildoers are also victims, not evil people. Now this does not mean that you do not strenuously resist evil. It just means that we have to keep in mind who our real enemies are. Paul reminds us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against sin, against death, and against the devil. And the evil that we suffer at the hands of our neighbors is due to their slavery to those powers. And so we are called to eagerly seek their redemption. God, that's hard. Goodness gracious. This is a hard, this is a hard word, brothers and sisters, But it's a necessary one because hating our enemies makes so much sense. If somebody wants you to be destroyed, it makes sense for you to respond in like manner. But that is not the way that the Lord treated us. They they killed Jesus and and he asked his father to forgive them. If we are called to be united to that Jesus... If we're called to be children of that father, it looks like loving our enemies. But not only must we, brothers and sisters, but we can. And for us to say that we can't is to massively underestimate the power of God, particularly the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. You see, brothers and sisters, God's promised redemption of Egypt And Assyria reminds us of the wide-sweeping nature of his grace. There is no sin so great that it can't be swallowed up when we repent and believe. No one is too far gone. That's the God that we serve. That's the redemption that we proclaim. And this is the life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we've been called to live. Let's pray.